Welcome to Tempest Tossed. We're a production of the Zolberg Institute on Migration and Mobility at the New School, and I'm Alex Alenikov. Today we're talking with Ruth Milkman, Distinguished Professor of Sociology at the City University of New York. And she's the author of a terrific new book, Immigrant Labor and the New Precariat, published this year, 2020. Welcome, Ruth. Thanks for having me, Alex. Great to have you. I really look forward to the conversation about this very interesting book. Now, a central focus of the book is the correlation between the deteriorating situation of the U.S. working class and the significant increase in low-skilled immigration, both happening since 1965. And that's led people to say, well, as immigration went up and as the condition of the working class in the U.S. went down, there must have been a cause. Immigration must have been the cause of this decline in the U.S. working class conditions. And you've called this narrative the immigrant threat narrative, and you say that's wrong. The book is written to correct what you think is a false narrative here. What's your claim and what arguments do you bring to support it? Well, in my view, the connection that you just articulated, the immigrant threat narrative, as I call it, is a, a case of mistaking a correlation for causation. So it is true that these two sets of trends all take place simultaneously. That does not mean that one causes the other. And what I try to argue in the book is that they're independent of one another. And actually, if anything, the cause and consequence are the opposite of what that narrative suggests. In other words, that it's the deterioration of the situation of the US working class that stimulates low wage immigration. So I try to argue that a bunch of different trends occurring in the period starting in the 1970s are responsible for the deteriorating situation of non-college educated US born workers, for short, I'll call that the US working class. So it's you know, we could debate what the boundaries of that are. And so those include, well, for starters, the three Ds, as I like to call them, this isn't in the book, but the industrialization, the decline of manufacturing and the exodus of um, factories from the United States to places where labor is cheaper, that's one. Deunionization is another, the decline of um, organized labor and, and of union density, that is the proportion of the workforce that is made up of union members, and then deregulation. So those three things, along with public policies that led to growing economic inequality in this country, have added up to a major reversal in the fortunes of the U.S.-born working class. Everybody, I think, is aware of those trends to some degree. And the point is that those have led to declining real wages, that is, wages controlling for inflation for many U.S.-born workers, especially male workers, as well as the evaporation of things like defined benefit pensions. We all know about the declining coverage of health, of health insurance coverage for U.S.-born workers. So all those things have given U.S.-born workers many reasons to be unhappy with their situation, and the immigrant threat narrative connects that to the arrival of immigrants, suggesting that, you know, that's the real reason that they, their, their fortunes have been so dramatically reversed. I don't think that's the case. So you present these other reasons for the declining prospects for the U.S.-born workers, which leads to less favorable jobs, which then there's a demand to fill those jobs and employers turn overseas to fill the jobs that U.S. workers 
uh, are no longer interested in. But where do the U.S. workers go who, who face these worsening conditions? Yeah, that's a very good question. And it's not easy to document that. I can answer it for some groups. For example, in the um, construction industry, what happened in this period was that residential construction building, single family homes especially, um, was transformed from a highly unionized industry in many parts of the country to a almost completely non-union industry. And the workers who had been employed in that industry when it was unionized, many of them just moved over into commercial construction where the union density remained much higher. Um, and actually the changes occurred in a period of, you know, a building boom period. So there were plenty of jobs in commercial construction. So there it's really clear where they went. In many cases, I don't really know the answer to that, but you can really see the dramatic exodus of U.S. born workers from these industries as they deteriorate. You've got a, a number of interesting case studies. I wonder if you talk about the meatpacking industry, which has been in the news in part because of COVID. We saw these very isolated, large factories, almost exclusively immigrant labor, and COVID just running rampant through them. I think people were surprised that there were these large immigrant communities in, in locations in the upper Midwest. How did that come to be? Oh, it's such an interesting case. So meatpacking nowadays, as you said, is overwhelmingly the workforce is foreign born, but that was not always the case. In the mid 20th century, it was overwhelmingly US born and it was actually relatively good place to work for non-college educated workers. So people probably are familiar with the famous book by Upton Sinclair called The Jungle written in the early 20th century that exposed the misery of the industry, both in terms of um, the workforce, but also in terms of the products that came out of it and the dangers they posed to the public. The, the kind of outcry that that book helped stimulate did lead to change. And in by the 1930s and 1940s, when there was a huge upsurge of union organizing in meatpacking, the industry was transformed into one where jobs were much better than they had been. By the 1960s, outside the South, the industry was almost 100% unionized. Wages were above average for manufacturing. Workers had pensions, healthcare. They also had a very strong shop steward system that allowed them to control the pace of work pretty effectively. And then starting in the late 1960s, the industry begins to change in pretty dramatic ways. I'll try to sketch it in a general way. The first big innovation was what was then called boxed beef. It used to be that cattle were transported from the places where, you know, in the Midwest and places where they were cultivated to big cities like New York and Chicago and elsewhere. And then the slaughtering happened in those cities. And then in the 1960s, some of the people in the industry figured out that it would be much cheaper to go where the cattle were. The, they call it the final feeding locations. So they, they began to chop up the meat in those locations instead of in the big cities. And they also mechanized the work at the same time. So basically jobs disappear in places like Chicago, which was one of the strongholds of, of the unionized part of the industry and moved to Kansas, Iowa, Nebraska, places like that. Initially, the union followed the work, but um, management in these companies that were making these changes, most famously something called Iowa Beef Processors or, or IBP, which later merged into other things, so it's not called that anymore, 
they fought the union very vigorously. And these places where the industry moved were right-to-work states, besides meaning um, that uh, it was illegal to have um, union shops under collective bargaining agreements. So between the management resistance and the laws in those places, the union was dramatically weakened and wages fell by about a third in the 1980s alone. And now we're below the manufacturing average in contrast to what I mentioned before in the heyday of unionism in the industry. Speed up returns to the industry and pretty soon the conditions are not that different from what Upton Sinclair had documented a century ago. So now U.S. born workers begin to abandon the industry in droves. So to some extent it abandons them insofar as it's moving, but also, in the rural areas where IBP and the other companies initially set up shop, they tried to recruit U.S.-born white workers in those areas, and they found that they encountered enormously high turnover rates, meaning people would try to work out, and then they think, I can't do this, and they would leave. They also dreamed of um, recruiting women who were considered surplus labor in some of those communities. And in one case I came across, they even set up a daycare center anticipating that, but it basically didn't work. They, they faced enormous labor shortages very quickly. So they didn't originally plan to um, use a foreign-born workforce, but as the U.S.-born workers refused to take these jobs or tried them out and then left, they began to actively recruit workers from abroad, both Asian refugees and ultimately in much larger numbers, Latinx immigrants. And, and it was actually a rocky transition at first. In some of the plants, the managers, you know, they didn't speak the same language as the workers. They complained about this and that. But before long, they were converted to the view, which you hear a lot nowadays, that immigrants were the best workers. You know, they were the, they were the most desirable. You know, I used to live in Los Angeles. And I remember in the 1980s and 90s, I was always struggling to improve my Spanish. And I would listen to talk radio. And I would hear these ads um, in Spanish, recruiting workers to work in Iowa. They would say, hey, you know, you should come to Iowa. You know, housing is affordable and we have these great jobs for you there. So they did, in fact, recruit from U.S.-based immigrants at first, but that also did not prove sufficient. And by the turn of the century, IBP and some of the other companies set up recruiting operations in Mexico. They provided bus service to the U.S., they put ads on the radio there. And many of the people who came were undocumented and they knew that. As many as a quarter to half of the workforce are estimated to, to be undocumented today. And, and so the industry was completely transformed. You describe low-skilled labor demand as segmented by gender. That is that women immigrants tend to fill very different jobs from male immigrants. What are the different conditions women face? And, how does this story fit into your overall thesis? Well, it's not just immigrants for, of whom that's true, of course, but U.S.-born workers, too, tend to be quite segregated by gender e even today, and that's been true throughout the history of American capitalism. So the dynamics are somewhat different in female-employing industries, and um, one of the ones I look at in some detail in the book is paid domestic labor, maids, nannies, housekeepers, that sort of thing, which used to be an African-American dominated occupation. And I guess the biggest difference from what I described a, a few minutes ago in meatpacking and in construction and industries like that, which are much more heavily male, although meatpacking is actually quite mixed, is that these were never good jobs. 
So this is not a case of labor degradation, domestic work. It was always a crummy job. And partly for that reason, it was dominated by African-American women who were, until the 1970s, largely excluded from more desirable jobs and highly concentrated in that kind of work. But the process is not that different than in the male-dominated sectors of the labor market in that there is an exodus of African-American women in the case of domestic work from the occupation. These become jobs that Americans won't do or don't want. And it's a result, though, not of labor degradation, but rather of the civil rights movement successfully opening up other kinds of jobs to African-American women. So I'll just give you one uh, number here. In 1960, 39% of black women employed in the United States were in domestic work. And 20 years later, in 1980, only 5% were. And in the same period, the earnings of black women increased dramatically relative to those of white women. In 1960, black women earned about two-thirds, 65% of what white women earned. And by 1980, 99%. Now, both white and black women in 1980 earned much less than white men. So, you know, this is not equality, but it it was a dramatic change in the situation of African-American women. And economists who've written about this point to it as the single most dramatic change in the labor market in the 20th century in terms of this mass exodus of workers. So once that happens, employers, in this case, it's private households, begin to hire immigrants. And today we think of domestic work as an immigrant occupation. So that's one of several gender stories that I try to tell in this book. Putting these arguments together, at least as to the male workers you describe, they're justified in being angry about rising inequality and degradation of their work, but that they shouldn't direct that anger at immigrants. Immigrants aren't responsible for those changes in the conditions they see. Who should they be angry at? They should be angry at employers and at other elites who are making the public policies that facilitate the efforts of employers to, you know, eliminate or weaken unions and to um, export jobs to other places and to create tax policies that favor the 1% and all the rest of it. So it's very convenient to scapegoat immigrants when you see that they're now concentrated in jobs that maybe your parents once did. But you have to understand that those jobs are completely transformed from what they were before. Yeah, I mean, the anger is totally well-founded. I think in some ways, that if you think about deindustrialization, like the flight of capital from the United States in the manufacturing sector, in a way, it's the perfect example. It's sort of the extreme case of this. How could you blame immigrants for jobs leaving Ohio and Pennsylvania? The jobs aren't there. It's not that immigrants are doing these jobs that somebody else used to do. The jobs have left. And yet, you will find in some of those communities that the Trumpian, and it's not just Trump, this narrative was around before Trump, he just sort of glommed onto it and made it more prominent, that that sort of scapegoating occurs even in those communities and in places where there are very few immigrants actually even present. So it's really a question of educating people about what really underlies the deterioration in their circumstances. You adopt a progressive approach at the end of the book, which I want to get to in a moment, but along the way, you you actually take aim at progressives who have argued that limits should be put on immigration because they believe, I guess what you would call the, the fallacy here, that immigrants are responsible for the worsening of the situation of the U.S. working class. Do you 
do you find it odd to be at, at, at odds with, with other progressives? What, where do you think they've gone wrong on this thing? Well, well, it's not all progressives, but there is definitely a group who make that case, who argue that basically having more workers competing for jobs from wherever, including immigrant workers, U.S.-born workers, by increasing the labor supply through open immigration, they argue, um, you weaken the ability of the workers to organize and improve their situation as a class. Um, so in the abstract, that does seem plausible, but in the concrete, I don't think, first of all, that um, workers are in a position to control the level of immigration. It's employers who lobby hard for open borders, as the phrase goes. And in any case, if you think about what's possible for progressives in this country today, there is no winning coalition that is not going to include workers of color, whether they're born in the United States or somewhere else. And so to embrace the idea that only U.S.-born workers have a legitimate claim to good jobs and all the rest of it um, is suicidal for the progressive coalition. You know, it's falling into the divide and conquer trap that employers and elites have set for U.S. workers. The, the only solution to that is to build across those boundaries. And, and, it's not, and that's not a utopian project. You know, we've seen it happen in many admittedly small scale situations where workers have successfully organized across those boundaries. You described the, the sort of checkered past, if I can put it that way, of the relationship of unions to to migrants and, and immigration. Do you want to say a word about that and where we are now? Well, it's a very long history, but um, yeah, there are many episodes in the past where labor unions, the organized labor movement, has been quite hostile to immigrant rights. Along the lines of the logic we just talked about that some people on the left today embrace, not union people necessarily. In fact, unions have become, have completely reversed their position on this since around the turn of the 21st century. So, you know, to me, it's somewhat analogous to what happened with women workers about a century ago. It used to be that the U.S. unions were very hostile to women workers as well. They saw them as cheap labor who were undercutting the pay and conditions that male workers had fought for. And they tried to exclude them from unions. And eventually it dawned on labor leaders that women workers weren't going to leave the labor force no matter how much exclusionary pressure that they tried to exert. And they changed their stance and began organizing those women and trying to lift up their conditions. Parallel to that, it took another 80 years or so, that began to happen in the very late 20th century when as low-age immigration continued to increase, and unions began to see, first of all, that these were workers who actually were very eager to join union ranks when they had the opportunity, which wasn't often enough, but it began to happen here and there. And also that there was no way that by excluding immigrants from the labor movement, they were going to succeed in blocking immigration. That just wasn't going to happen. And so they basically did a 180 degree turn and began embracing the idea that immigrants should have the same rights as every other worker and began recruiting them pretty actively to the point where the unionization rate in the private sector among immigrants is almost the same as that among U.S.-born workers for both groups. It's unfortunately very, very low right now. But so that really was a, a dramatic transformation. And it kind of went against the assumption that immigrants, and especially unauthorized immigrants, would be afraid to organize or reluctant to join unions. It turns out it's almost the opposite has been true. Again, the evidence is not that systematic, but we've seen a lot of examples where 
you know, immigrants, again, given the opportunity, have flocked into the labor movement. The most famous case is the so-called Justice for Janitors movement, organizing office building cleaners in a bunch of cities around the United States, which was a campaign that many people were skeptical about, but was actually spectacularly successful in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. So that got the attention of the labor movement as well. And if you sort of talk to labor organizers, as I have many times in the in recent years, and ask them about this, they'll say, oh, no, immigrants are easy to organize. It's the U.S. born we have trouble with. And that's also a total reversal of, you know, what it was like 30 years ago, where many um, union staffers and officials were very hostile to immigrants and saw them as a threat. I'm wondering what what role evidence, like the kind you bring here, can play in a post-truth world. Can you get those who hold anti-immigrant views to believe what you're saying, or or even to say it slightly differently? You know, scholars have argued that anti-immigrant animus and xenophobia may be more a function of concerns about demographic shifts in the country or their status in security in the overall economic system than a specific concern about job competition. If either of those is true, that is, we don't really trust evidence anymore, and in fact, job competition is not the major cause of anti-immigrant feeling in the country, what role do you think uh, your work has in creating a more progressive narrative? Well, I mean, the post-truth part, I don't really have a good answer to. If people aren't interested in evidence, then nothing I've written is going to persuade them. But for people who are open to learning about the history of all this, I think it is helpful to point out that while, again, workers have many reasons to be unhappy about their current situation, if they look into it even just a little bit, it becomes pretty clear that immigrants are the result rather than the cause of their plight. And I think that is helpful to point out to people, um, or at least I'd like to think so. So that was kind of my goal in, in writing this, um, is offering a, you know, a different perspective. There are um, advocacy groups that have gone around the country trying to act on this question and try to unite across the lines of both race and immigration status. For example, there's a group called People's Action that has done what they call deep canvassing, where they try to engage people in not just you know quick phone calls, but long face-to-face conversations, mostly pre-pandemic, obviously, to try to explore these issues and to try to help people see the common ground that they might share with workers who they don't identify with or, or maybe are threatened by in terms of the kind of status anxiety that you mentioned. And they've been pretty successful in doing that. So I think, you know, it's a big challenge and something that many more people would have to work on, but I'm optimistic about that possibility. If the immigrant threat narrative is wrong, what what narrative would you propose in its place? Well, this isn't a narrative about immigration, but I think the story of the growth of precarity among non-college educated U.S.-born workers is a story of direct efforts by employers, new business strategies that involve squeezing labor and minimizing the protection against the inequalities that market economies generate. And and this is very well documented. The, the, The link I try to make in the book is to point out that all those trends are the real story in terms of the immiseration of U.S.-born workers and that immigration just happens to be happening at the same time and in some ways is stimulated by that as we talked about earlier. So that's the alternative story. 
Professor Ruth Milkman, thank you so much for being with us. The book is Immigrant Labor and the New Precariat, published by Polity Press. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Tempest Tossed is a production of the Zolberg Institute on Migration and Mobility at the New School. Our producer and engineer is Sahil Ansari, and our music is composed by Eli Alenikov. 